All right, we'll go ahead and get started. It's that time. It's good to see everybody here. I, I was going to shut the door, but I honestly can't figure out how to shut it, so I just left it. It's got one of those magical little things in the floor. So someone's going to have to teach me the trick at some point. The trick of what? Press down on the little. Don't touch nothing, just step on it with your foot on the little yeah. little thing. Oh, you step on it, all right. All right. It, it had me stumped. I was sitting there pulling on the door trying to figure out how to make it go. We offer a degree in it. Okay, good <laughs> deal. Yeah. All right, well, let me... Uh, let me have you, if you want to follow along in our Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 8. Does everyone have the notes? So the, the new set of notes from or for tonight starts on page 32. So we'll finish up one paragraph there at the bottom of page 31 from last time. And then we'll go on to page 32. And the goal is to look at Matthew 8 and 9 tonight. It's a unit that holds together. So let me open in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, I'm so grateful for your kindness to us. Um, I'm thankful that you reign, that your Son has been given all power and authority over this world, that he sits at your right hand, and that someday he will come with the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. Uh, Father, we want your will to be done here on earth the same way that it is in heaven, uh, but we know that ultimately can only come when our Savior returns. So we long for His coming uh, with the early church. Uh, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And uh, we are glad that you've given us this opportunity in a comfortable place and with great freedom to, to study Scripture together. So I pray that you'd help us to use it well and that your Son would be honored. And we ask for this in His name. Amen. All right, so let's look at Matthew chapter 8. And where we're headed is in this chapter is this set of ten miracles that Jesus performs in, this, in these two chapters that demonstrate that He's acting with God's power and God's authority in a world that rightly belongs to God but currently is experiencing problems brought on by our, own, our sin, right? So he's dealing with uh, the symptoms of sin, the diseases, the demonic oppression, the things that happen in this world because we're sinners. But ultimately, I'm going to try to argue that that's just a pointer to the, the root cause, which is sin itself, that he also has come to save his people from. Because remember that opening statement, his name is Jesus because he came to seek or to save his people from their sins. All right. So at the bottom of page 31, I say in, in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew describes two aspects of Jesus' ministry. First, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And second, he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
So that's, if you look at chapter 4, verse 23, that was kind of the opening summary statement. If you describe what Jesus was doing, he was going around preaching the good news about the kingdom. And then Matthew says, and the other thing that he was doing is he was healing every disease and sickness among people. That's the summary statement. And then he gave you an example of the first one. The, the example of the first one was the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's going to give you examples of the second one. Okay, So he's going to, like a Prezi presentation, he's going to zoom in on each one of those components and he's going to show you what it looked like. Because Jesus pre preached the Sermon on the Mount, I think he preached it more than once, and he probably did these types of miracles more than once, but they're just kind of given to us as a quick little snapshot, like a, an album book of Jesus' life and his ministries. Because if you go to the end of chapter 9, there's going to be this statement there in verse 35. After all these miracles that are on the screen are performed and described, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. You see how those are bookends with each other? So that's the biblical author's way of saying, this is a section. It needs to be read together by repeating the same phrase that he had at the beginning at the end. All right. So flipping the page there to the top of page 32... I think these miracle accounts here in chapters 8 through 9, they're topical rather than chronological. We can see that real clearly because we, we did this back at the first night. We put them up side by side with Mark and Luke, and there's different orders, okay? So only one of them could have the chronological order, and maybe none of them do because their point wasn't to establish a chronology. It was to arrange these topically. We'll talk in a second here about why he may have chose these and arranged them. But their overall purpose, and I think the purpose of Jesus' miracles was primarily, and I've got that there in bold there because I think it's important for us to understand this, to authenticate his role as the king of Israel, who would rule in a kingdom with far-reaching spiritual, physical, and social benefits. So yes, Jesus did care about the people that he healed. And he was responding to their pleas for mercy. So you can't separate uh, that, that out. But there's also going to be times where it says in the Gospels that Jesus leaves areas. And he doesn't keep healing. He didn't heal everybody. And some of the people, if they weren't believers, who experienced his healing, it was only temporary, right? It, it didn't last. They still got sick again. They still died again. Right? He came for a greater mission, something that he won't fully accomplish until he returns someday. He's going to establish a kingdom where everything is made right. So it won't just be spiritual problems, but it will also be physical problems, and it will be social problems. All of the injustices and the evils that we see in this world will be made right when we have a good king. And his, his miracles, these signs that he performs during his ministry, are evidence, exhibit A, that he's able to do this. They're great big pointers over him that he, he's the guy. He is the one who will be able to accomplish this someday. Because after all, if as I've tried to argue in the beginning chapters, if Matthew were presenting Jesus as the prophet like Moses, whose commands are to be obeyed, 
he would be expected to perform validating signs like Moses, right? Anyone looking for the prophet like Moses would remember that Moses was able to do signs and wonders, right? Moses even asked for that ability, right? When I go into Pharaoh, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And God said, well, I'm going to let you do some signs. And he, he does some right there with Moses at the, at the initial calling. So the signs also show that Jesus genuinely cared for humanity's plight. And his healings also give us a preview of his coming kingdom. So one way to think about Jesus' ministry there in Galilee is that that tiny little piece of country, you know, 10 square miles, something like that, maybe smaller, those people that lived there for those three or four years, they got to see a little tiny preview of what someday the whole world will look like. Not to cheapen Jesus' ministry, but it's almost like the, the trailer that gets you excited to watch the movie, right? You get the little sneak preview so you're excited about the real thing. I think that's one way we could think of Jesus' miracles. It wasn't just about that person and their need, although that was important, but it was also so that us, 2,000 years later, could be sitting here tonight reading them and thinking about them, and we could know, hey, that's what Jesus is someday going to do with the whole world. Someday we'll live in a world where there won't be blind people, there won't be paralyzed people, there won't be demon-possessed people, there won't be dead people, all right? Because he's able to conquer all of these things because all of them go back to sin, and he's going to put an end to sin itself. All right, that next paragraph there. I'm, I'm going to suggest here that Matthew arranges the miracles into three sets containing three stories each. And I tried to illustrate that up there on the screen with the, the colors. And we can kind of see this because he'll have little statements like when Jesus came down, when Jesus entered, when Jesus came into. And they let us know that a next story is being introduced. After each of the first two sets, there's some kind of response to Jesus, whether negative or positive. So that breaks the stories about the miracles with, well, what should we do with a man that is doing these kind of things? How should we respond to someone with this type of power and authority? And then finally, after the healing of the mute demon-possessed man at the end, uh, we come to a very wrong response. All right? So let's try to go through these miracles here. Uh, the first set starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way through 17. He's going to heal a leper, the servant of a Gentile, and then a woman. So this first set, what seems to kind of group them together, if they're being arranged topically, is that all three of them involve people that would have been considered on the margins of society in that day. A leper, which was treated like a leper, right? We still have that expression today. <laughs> you don't want to go near them. A Gentile and a woman. All right, so Jesus heals a leper. Leprosy in the New Testament can refer to a wide range of skin diseases. So today we use leprosy for a very specific disease. It's usually, I think, in medical terms called Hansen's disease. So leprosy would have included that, but it included lots of different things that were considered incurable. And I think that's the key in this, this first, um, first miracle. Because you have to ask yourself, you know, we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew's going to give us this new section all about, hey, this is what Jesus' healing ministry looks like. You know, why, why the leprosy one? Why is that the first one that he chooses to start with? You know, if you were going to arrange Jesus' miracles topically, which ones would you start with? The walking on the water, the raising of the dead. This might not be the first one that we think of as being dramatic. But from the... Visible. What's that? Yeah, yeah, very tangible, yeah. I think, too, part of it is that... Oh, go ahead, Wes. The picture work of our... A physical picture of our spiritual state of how terrible it is. Yeah, how, yeah. It, it definitely would have been something that would have been next to being dead. I mean, it was in their society... It's, it's, it's pretty much, you're as good as dead, right? Cut off from your family, cut off from interactions with other people. And uh, you had an incurable disease that they themselves would describe as something that only God could take care of, right? So this is the story that I'm reminded of in the Old Testament. This is when Naaman writes to the king of Israel and said, hey, I want someone to, you know, to, no, it was the king of Syria, right? Writes to the king of Israel and says, I want somebody to, cure uh, Naaman, my official. And the member of the king of Israel, he rips his clothes, right? So it says, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, and he says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So he's basically like, I'm toast. This larger country that's more powerful is asking me to do this favor, and they know that I can't do it. So they must be trying to pick a fight because I'm not God. I can't kill and make alive. That's what they would have thought of as, as, as equivalent to leprosy, raising someone from the dead. It's something that only God could do. Only he would have the power to do that. But as we've been starting to see in the story, and we knew because we've read the story before, Jesus is God, right? He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. So that's point A. Point B, like the account of the Sermon on the Mount, this first miracle recorded by Matthew appears to associate Jesus with Moses deliberately. So I think this is maybe another reason why it's the first one that Matthew mentions, because Matthew especially wants us to connect Jesus with, with Moses. So first, Moses also healed leprosy at the beginning of his ministry. And he did so again during the wilderness wandering. Remember when his sister got leprosy? So it was a miracle associated with Moses. Second, that exact same phrase, reach out his hand, describes God's actions in the Exodus. So here's um, in Exodus 3.20 on the bottom. Uh, God is speaking to Moses. He says, So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. That's chapter 3. Then you can go to chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8, and then they start building. There's all of these references. If you just went through electronic Bible sometime in Exodus and did a search for the word hand, this phrase keeps happening over and over again. Either God is stretching out his hand or Moses is stretching out his hand. And the two start becoming interchangeable because Moses is God's servant. Moses is acting with God's authority. 
And we're supposed to make that same connection to Jesus. He's, he's doing this with God's authority. He's doing only things that God can do. And third, this is the, the one miracle where Moses is actually mentioned. Because after this um, man with leprosy is healed, he's told that he's supposed to go show himself to the priest and do what the law of Moses requires. I have a question. Yes. Why did they have the why did they have to keep going to the priest if they showed up and then you know, you had to check him and see if he had hair out of it and then go back and keep going back and forth? I mean, what was that supposed to do? Yeah, I think it's just supposed to safeguard the community. So just to ensure that things aren't spreading. So I think it has a very practical safeguard, just like a quarantine today. Like you have to get your COVID test before you go back to work. Like we're all familiar with that from the last couple of years, right? It's their equivalent. There were things that weren't allowed in the community. Now, the one difference is they also have a spiritual component to their community because they're a theocracy ruled directly by God. So the, some of the things that they are told to do, like, you know, don't mix the fibers of your clothing or don't eat certain foods, those had a kind of a symbolic purpose that goes beyond just health and sanitary conditions. So sometimes it's hard to decipher which is going on in a passage, but what brings those all together is that they were supposed to be a unique set-apart community, and the priests played a role in maintaining that uniqueness and safeguarding the, the whole. Yeah. Is it like they had law? Law said you had to appear before the priest? Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Uh, so Jesus and this man are still living under the law of Moses. So until, until Jesus' death and resurrection, and there's a shift that takes place in God's economy, uh, all of these people are, are expected to keep the law. And Jesus did himself. He, he wasn't a lawbreaker. And so he's saying, hey, you're, you've been healed genuinely but you still have to go through the steps of going and showing yourself to the priest. Another point here that I think Carson makes in his commentary that's helpful, this point C, is that Jesus does not appear at all concerned about touching this man with leprosy. Uh, that's maybe lost on us, but that would have been striking if you were one of the original readers. He touched a leper, right? He would have been defiled. Uh, but Jesus and all of these interactions with Situation. Some of them that we would consider downright icky, especially when we get to the demon-possessed men, he never seems to be at all worried about himself being defiled. I think that's a little clue here that he's not just like us. There's something special about us. He can remove other people's defilement, but he no, it doesn't go both ways. He can never get defilement from other people. So he's, he's not afraid to find us where we are and to rescue us. All right, let's turn the page then to the, the second miracle, point two there in the next page. So Jesus heals this paralyzed servant of a centurion. So this, this man's a soldier. Uh, a centurion was an officer under the broad category of the Roman army who commanded a hundred men. So he's not a high-ranking officer. I think in today's military, that'd be a captain, I think, would be the equivalent, right? Someone that leads about a hundred men. So uh, kind of a middle-grade officer, not, not highly paid, 
more of a working class. They, they were the backbone of the Roman army, except he's probably not himself Roman or Italian. So the main Roman legions would have been based up toward Damascus, where the capital of the Syrian province was located. The legions only came down to Judea as they did in the Jewish war to put out rebellions, okay, if there was problems. In the meantime, there was kind of a local police force of auxiliary troops that would have been drawn from the surrounding Gentile populations, which there was plenty of, okay? But the key thing to take away from this is that he is a Gentile. Uh, Luke's, Luke's account makes that very clear, because remember Luke adds the detail that he bought a synagogue, or he helped pay for a synagogue for some people, which would have been a, a big commitment on his part, right? So we have a centurion, and remarkably, point B, this centurion recognizes that Jesus is acting with God's authority, just as he, the centurion, can order troops when acting with Rome's authority. So he says there in verse 9, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And then he says, because I'm a man under authority, I can say to a soldier, go, and he'll go. And I, and I believe you're a man under authority, and so you can do the same thing. And It's hard, I think, on a first read sometimes to understand what he's saying. Because when he says a man under authority, that seems to be the opposite of what he means, right? Because we would think, well, if he's on the top of the food chain, he should be the guy bossing him around. But you have to understand the way he thinks of his authority. His authority is derived. He's a centurion. He commands a hundred men, and those hundred men will do anything he tells them to do because at the top of the food chain is Caesar, right? He operates with Caesar's authority. If the centurion tells his men an order, it's not just the centurion speaking, it's Caesar speaking through the centurion, down through the, the, the chain of military command. And that's the same principle he's applying to Jesus. He says, I've heard about you, I've seen what you've done, I believe that you're a man under authority like I am. You have someone greater that's giving you authority, that's working through you. He's, recognize, he's recognizing indirectly, again, that he's operating with, with God's authority. And he says, you know, you don't even have to uh, you know, go to my servant's house. You can just speak the word, and I believe that he'll be healed. Well, in verses 11 through 12, Jesus declares that this Gentile who have faith in him, like the centurion, will enter the kingdom. You know, he says in verse 10, I skipped over that, but that this is great faith, right? This isn't just faith. This is great faith. But there will be people who expect to enter the kingdom, ethnic Jewish people. He calls them here the subjects of the kingdom, or in some of our translations, it's the sons of the kingdom. People who think they belong, they think they're citizens, they think that because they have this ethnic connect, connection to the patriarchs, that when that kingdom comes someday in the future, they'll be guaranteed a spot there. But they'll actually be excluded, while some un, unlikely people, like this Gentile, will actually be able, he says, to sit down at the banquet uh, with the patriarchs. Um, any, any questions about that? I mean, you see what Matthew's doing here with these stories? It's, the healing itself is remarkable. 
but something greater is going on and that we're being shown that Jesus is doing things that no man has ever been able to do. He's doing things that God is doing through him. He's doing things with God's own authority. All right? So, um, so Jesus knows he's been born again? They weren't born again. They were looking at death. You're talking about the people that, that he the was healing? Centurion, they, they said great faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that the same as salvation faith? Yeah, that's a good question. I do think that when Jesus makes mention of people's faith in the Gospels, that he is referring to saving faith. Um, now, now, that doesn't mean that everybody that Jesus healed believed. Because you know, we, we have these big summary statements where it just says, you know, Jesus was there all night and he was healing lots of people. And we're not told if all of those people demonstrated faith or if he was just showing kindness. Another example of this is uh, in the book of Acts. Remember, people were just like walking by the apostles and they were just instantly getting healed. So that, that type of thing maybe is going on in Jesus' ministry at all, as well. But these specific people that the gospel writers zero in on and they tell us that they exhibited faith, I think we're being told that because we realize that it's faith that is the instrument that saves us from our sins. And since our physical diseases and the pain and suffering that we have in this world are symptoms of sin, then Jesus is, is kindly removing the symptom along with the root at the same time. You see that? Like, and he doesn't always do that. He doesn't do that for us, right? We still live with our symptoms, and God still has good reasons for that. But he kindly removed the symptoms from these people's lives as a pointer to that future day when we'll all get our symptoms removed. Uh, we can have great confidence that our ailments will go away someday because Jesus has already shown that he's, he's capable of doing it. And the centurion, too, was really doing it on a faith base, too, because it, was, it didn't even have to go. Mm -hmm. Just say the word. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why it's great faith, right? You know, Jesus makes this point. This is, uh, it, you know, that doesn't mean like when you, we have saving faith, like you can have, you know, kind of saving faith, and then you could have like a really big saving faith. It's just because the the amount of our faith isn't what really matters. What really ma matters is the object of our faith, the greatness of the person that we have faith in is really what matters. But Jesus still does point out that what this person has has shown is great. And theologically, we would say he's only had great faith because God's already given him new birth. He's already changed his heart. Not because he believed that he could get. Yeah, I think it's deeper than I just believe this guy can heal me. I think this man truly recognizes who Jesus is, and he has a he has Jesus as the object of his faith. Right, because he went out of his way to go see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll try to develop that more as we go through some of the rest of the, the accounts, especially later in the Gospel. Um, yes, sir? It's a little tangential, so I apologize. No, that's right. But, um, would you then say it's fair that, well, to say that um, faith entails belief, but belief doesn't entail faith? 
Not all believing is of faith, but faith does yield. Belief is another Greek for faith is the noun for belief. Yeah, the problem in English, when we say belief, we tend to think of just intellectual facts. Where I think the better translation often of, translation often of faith would be trust. Because trust has a little different nuance. Like I could say I believe something is true, or I could say I'm trusting in something. Even in English, we know there's a difference, right? And you've heard preachers make illustrations before. You can say, I believe the chair will hold me, but do you really trust that the chair will hold you? I believe that you know, airplanes don't always fall out of the sky, but do you really trust that? You know, so trust implies more than just intellectual content. It, it involves other aspects of our inner being, an ascent, uh, a volitional aspect. And so... Uh, I prefer to trust usually when I'm talking rather than just belief. Because I think in English, belief just too easily means I believe something, check the box, I'm good. And that's not the biblical concept of faith. All right. So just real quickly here, I wanted to show you from Psalm 107.3. This is point E. When Jesus says that there will be people gathered from the east and the west who will sit down with the patriarchs at this banquet, there are several different Old Testament passages he could have been thinking of. Uh, that little phrase, east and west, you know, occurs often. But I think this is probably the one, because when he heals the storm here in a couple more uh, stories from now, I think that story also connects back to the same psalm. So it makes sense to me that if the same psalm is being connected twice in the chapter, that that's probably deliberate on Matthew's part. Uh, this is a psalm that many of us know, right? We're familiar with it. It starts out, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those He redeemed from the hand of the foe, those He gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. So it's, it's like written from the perspective of people who have been saved, and now they're looking back and they're giving thanks to the Lord, and then they go through the rest of the psalm, they describe where they were when God found them and saved them. And, you know, and much of this, I think, is built off of, of metaphor. Okay, So we're not supposed to literally find ourselves in a desert, for example, in that first one. But I think the desert could be a metaphor for lots of different situations that we maybe found ourselves in before the Lord found us, right? So he goes and says, Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then it continues on through the psalm. We'll come back to it here in a second because it has a part about men going out on ships and finding themselves in a storm, tossed around, feeling like they're drunkards because they're so wobbly. And they cry out to the Lord, and He comes to rescue them. All right? Let's go back to our, our list, and we'll flip the page. We'll go to page 34. It's a short little one that ends the set, but Jesus uh, goes to Peter's house. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law, which, by the way, means that Peter was married, right? 
Uh, it's hard to argue for an apostolic succession of priesthood that begins with Peter and then argue that they shouldn't be married if the guy at the top was, was married, right? So Peter has a wife because he has a mother-in-law. She's in the house with a fever. It just quickly says that Jesus can, comes in and heals her and probably adds the little detail there, I say in point A, that uh, she got up and served them food just to emphasize the fact that she really is well. That's not the normal way we get over some kind of bad virus that laid us low with a fever. Like you don't just jump out of bed and be like, okay, I'm going to fix the guys a bunch of food, right? That's not normal behavior. That's not how I would respond. So I think it's added here to show the, the remarkably quick and effective way that Jesus was able to cure this woman from this virus that was causing her the fever, or whatever it was that caused the fever. Then it, it says here just quickly, point B, that Jesus, you know, he heals various illnesses. He's casting out demons, which is something he apparently regularly does. But then Matthew, uniquely, of all the gospel writers, he adds this little editorial comment. So this is chapter 8, verse 17. He says, all this was taking place, this, this healing and this freeing of demons, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4, he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Now, at first glance, if we look at Isaiah 53, I'll put it up here on the board for us, we might think, well, this passage is really just talking about our sin, right? We all know this passage. It's got some familiar verses that we've probably memorized. It's talking about how we've gone astray as sheep and how God has laid the sin or the iniquity of these sheep upon Jesus. That is true. The part that Matthew's quoting is at the very beginning of verse 4. He doesn't directly quote it from the existing Greek scrolls that we think they were using at that time. He seems to like to just know the Hebrew Old Testament and then translate it himself. That seems to be his normal practice. It makes him a little bit different than Mark and Luke. Um, and when he translates, though, it seems to be an accurate translation. And he understands that opening word to be referring to sicknesses or the things that Jesus is taking care of. So you can see, even in our English translations, we're, we're a little bit different. So I, tr I copy this out of the Christian Standard Bible, just because I think sometimes it's helpful to read a familiar passage in a different translation, just to get a different perspective. So it says, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. But in the ESV, it's griefs. In the NIV, it's pain. And he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken struck down by God and afflicted. So he was here to take away our pains, but we, you know, he was here to take away our problems, but we thought he was the one with the problem, right? He came to rescue us, but instead most people thought he was part of the problem and actually attacked him. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah 53 is written from the perspective of the Jewish believing community in the kingdom. Looking back at their history 
of what they did to the Messiah, but also what the Messiah did for them, right? And I think there that it, we don't have to make a division between sickness and sin because they go together as a package. Don't think in a very mechanical way, like you sin and then God zaps you with a cold. That's not the way we should look at it, okay? But broadly, the reason why you and I get sick, the, the, way, the reason why we see pain and suffering in this world, the reason why there's people who are demon-possessed in this world is because we're sinners, because Adam sinned and because we're just like Adam. It's sin that brought all of this into the world. So if, if Jesus is going to do away with sin, if our sin is going to be laid upon him, then that means that the, the symptoms will go with it, right? The symptoms will go with the root cause. They come together as a package. So again, I think Matthew knows exactly what he's doing by quoting this passage. That when we see Jesus performing these miracles, we should remember that long time ago, 700 years before Jesus lived, Isaiah the prophet was writing about people who haven't even lived yet, right? The, the Jewish people into the kingdom, looking back at Jesus' life and saying, he got rid of our sickness. He bore our sins. Our rebellion caused his death. He was pierced for us. All right, that's, uh, that's point three there in a nutshell. Any, any comments about that? Yep, sir. So the prosperity gospel preachers, mm -hmm. like, this is a kingdom promise, and I've heard them say the cross takes care of this yes. illness as well. Exactly. We all should be healed. No one should have cancer. And it's lack of our faith. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that that is that's happening. You, know, you probably had the experience I've had. You're in, you know, you're at a gas station pumping gas, and someone's put the little flyer in for the guy that's going to be somewhere here in Detroit, and he's going to be healing people. Or you come out of Kroger, and someone's stuck it underneath your windshield wiper. Right? They're all over, and they do often relate it to the kingdom. That's very common. They talk about it being a kingdom ministry or a kingdom promise. So if you go back to those earlier lessons where I was showing you the different views of the kingdom, and I was showing you slides, and if you didn't like history, that, that might have been boring. But my point there was that your view of the kingdom really does impact a lot of other theological points. If you think that we're currently living in the promised kingdom, then you would tend to expect miracles all over the place, right? But if you believe, as I do, that the king is alive and that he's reigning from God's right hand, but his will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven, and we're still waiting for him to come to make his kingdom on earth, well, that changes the way you view the in-between time, right? This in-between time is still a time where there's a usurper on the throne. There, is, there still is the... The, the devil, Satan, on the throne, ruling this world directly. And uh, we aren't seeing these kingdom promises fulfilled. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a theological answer, but then there's also just the practical issue of they're not actually doing the things that Jesus did. Uh, they're, they're not at their events, not that I would recommend going to them, but I'm guaranteeing that the things that we're going to read about in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew are not taking place. There's no dead little girls that are being brought back to life. There's no lepers being cured. There's no paralyzed people 
walking. Uh, those aren't the type of things that these charlatans are able to do. But this is the other caveat I want to throw there. Even if they do perform miracles, there's always an alternative source of their power, right? Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, there will be people at the final judgment will say, you know, I cast out demons in your name. I performed miracles in your name. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. What Jesus actually says is, I never knew you. He doesn't deny that they performed miracles. He just denies that they did miracles in his name. So we always have to hold out that scary possibility that those who perform signs and wonders can be drawn from an alternative power. And it has nothing to do with representing our God. Yeah. yeah. When Jesus, the one who legitimately could do this stuff, will say here in just a little bit, I don't even have a place to lay my head, right? It's the completely opposite, right? He lives a little itinerant, almost homeless lifestyle, him and his little camp of people that travel around together preaching, and he never seems to be interested at all in what he personally then is getting out of it, right? All right, so then what are we, how are we going to respond to someone who, who does these types of things? So we saw the first set of miracles. We don't have to get through all of them tonight. We can always come back tomorrow, There's, or next time. No rush, not tomorrow. Next week, Wednesday. Yeah. So the first response here, the first set of response in verses 18 through 22. So after presenting the first set of miracles, Matthew includes two scenes that illustrate a wrong response to Christ. So I think that's what's going on here in this first little gap. You get two wrong things. Uh, these are role models that you don't want to follow. First, you got this teacher of the law, or a scribe, another way it could be translated. Remember, these are people who had copied the law by hand, but in their copying, they become experts of the law. He wants to follow Jesus, but Jesus, I think knowing his heart, he reminds him that he himself is homeless, which is kind of a, a sideways way of reminding him, you're not going to get out of this what you think you're going to get out of it, right? You're not actually interested in living the way I live. A genuine disciple of Christ must be willing to give up privilege and comfort. Uh, Don Carson, in one of his books, he says, part of a genuine closing with Christ at some point entails counting the cost and coming to grips with the fact that loyalty to Jesus brings with it demands that may be costly. All right. We want to be united to Jesus for all of the great benefits that that comes with. But united with Jesus also means we're united with Him in His sufferings, right? That we should expect to be treated like He was in this world. It's, it's a package deal. <laughs> Those all come together. All right, verse 20. So in the context of Jesus just referring to His humility and His authority, so He's just said, hey, I don't even have a home. I don't even have a place to lay my head. He, for the first time, calls himself the Son of Man, which is going to become his favorite way of referring to himself in the rest of the gospel. And that's a big contrast. A human who doesn't even have a place to lay his head and sleep, but he's also the great Son of Man, the one that Daniel 7 prophesied about. Remember, that's where that phrase comes from, the, 
the vision of the four beasts that come out of the ocean, eventually the Antichrist, the little horn. The Antichrist raises his fists and rebels against God. He's destroyed, thrown into the fire, and then God gives the authority, the rule of this world, over to one who approaches his throne who looks like a son of man, right? It's, it's a reference to his ability to rule, and it's also, I think, a reference back to Adam, the one who originally was given dominion over the beasts, over the animals, and he failed. He failed to live up to his role as our first king, our first mediator. But the second Adam will succeed. He'll be successful at this. So when Jesus starts calling himself Son of Man, it probably doesn't seem... Uh, that powerful to us, maybe, until we stop and we think about all of the Old Testament background to that passage. All right, so then point three, the second example. It says that another man shows up here in verse 21. He, he wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to wait until after his father has died. That's in verse 21 there. He's called another disciple, which that likely points back to that scribe in verse 19. So, both men are called disciple, um, but disciple doesn't always mean the same thing. There's different types of disciples in the gospel account, just like there's different types of disciples today. There's lots of people who start out well-intentioned and look good on the outside who want to be followers of Jesus, who at some point decide the cost isn't worth it. There's something else in this world that I love better and I'll go follow that instead, okay? So I think these two men fall into that latter category. Uh, both men have some attachment to Christ, but it's a superficial attachment, short of what Jesus calls for in a true believer. All right, so Jesus says to him here, um, verse 22, I'll read it, but Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I think some people have pointed to this as kind of a heartless statement on Jesus' point, our part. Uh, there's been different explanations. Some people have suggested his father isn't actually dead yet. He's just waiting for his father to die, and then he'll do it, so he's trying to prolong. I think the best explanation that Jesus is just saying it's, it's a priority issue. He's assuming that there's other people in this family that can take care of the burial or whatever needs to happen to this man and his estate. He's saying there's some things in this world that are important, but there's, there's already people in place that can take care of them. But there's things that are more important that only a, follower, a genuine follower of Jesus will do. So he's saying do the better thing. Do the best thing. Burying your father is good. Taking care of your father's estate is good. But if there's dead, when he says dead bury the dead, I think he's using dead two different ways. So I think he means let the dead spiritually take care of the dead physically father. You see his point there? He's saying if you're truly my disciple and you're standing right there before the one you believe to be your Messiah, your king, and he's saying come follow me, then that's it. That's, that's the best thing for you to do. You go follow him. Whatever other excuses you come up with, even if they're good things, they're not the best thing. And let other people take care of those good things because you now have this, this unique opportunity to follow Christ. I've heard that a little bit differently. <clears throat> Somebody said the father was 
but literally knowing his heart that he was just dead in sin anyway. He wasn't mm -hmm. going to be knowing his heart. He's got a hardened heart. He's letting saying he's going to be dead, but the dead bury the dead and don't believe. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I've never heard it put quite that way. Yeah, it seems like the man would be using dead in a, like a literal physical sense. But I think Jesus, and then Matthew, as Matthew records Jesus' words, he, he would be capable of kind of doing a play on words and saying a dead spiritually person. It is admittedly a tough saying, um, but I think we understand the point that in following Jesus, there's going to be good things in this world that we will have to give up, right? And our, pro, our, our call as believers is always to look for the best things that we could be doing and not just get sidetracked with lots of good things that take the place of the, the best thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was going to say there, there are several, things, several places in Scripture where Jesus says something that we don't necessarily understand. And I, and I think it's a mistake, I don't think, I know it's a mistake to, to like immediately assume that there's some flaw in, in what Jesus is thinking or saying. There isn't. Right. And I think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is something we need to keep in our heads all the time. Is that when our understanding of something mm -hmm. and what he says conflicts, we're the ones right. mistaken, yeah. not him. Yeah. Jesus was not heartless. Mm. He proved that. Yep. Yeah, so we know automatically that harshness is off the table. There has to be another explanation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, any other any thoughts? All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive into the second set. So, yep, we got our, so we're on the blue set here. I guess that works well with the water one. I didn't intentionally do that, but he's, he's going to calm the storm. I'm not that, I don't have that much foresight. That was an accident. All right. So I think we're familiar with the storm scene, right? Uh, they're, they're in a genuine storm. Uh, we looked before at some pictures of the, uh, the lake there in Galilee. It's, it's basically, some people have described it as a cereal bowl. It just has hills around it. It's, it's relatively deep. And then it has this narrow little valley that runs up to it that creates like a wind tunnel from the north. So winds can just come whistling down that narrow valley. They hit that warm, deep water with the bowl effect around it. I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm told that creates some bad storms. Now, if it was me on the boat and there was a bad storm, it wouldn't be very bad for me to be scared because I don't go on boats very often. But remember who most of these men were, right? These are pretty much, as far as we know, all Galileans, right? They've crisscrossed this lake many times, and several of them are fishermen. So if they think they're going to die, if they're scared, this was genuinely a bad storm. And... They say that it almost can appear to be a small hurricane there on this relatively small lake just because of the way the topography is laid out there. And so I think the, this, the point here, the miracle, is to, to draw out this contrast. Carson puts it this way in, this, in his commentary, point A there. It's a, it sets faith over against fear. So these, these men and us, as we read it, 
you know, we have to ask ourselves when we're in those scary situations where we genuinely think we're going to die, we have two options. We can either be afraid or we can have trust. We can have faith in our God and in our, in our Jesus. So D- Jesus stands up. He stills the storm, right? Um, he just rebukes it. That's what it says there in verse 26. And it's instantly calm. And the disciples ask, what kind of man is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. And that's becoming a rhetorical question. You see how that works inside the story? Matthew set us up for this. We've been seeing all these things take place. We're starting to connect the dots. He is a man, but he isn't just a man. He's, He's doing things that only God could do. And I think this miracle especially would have been associated in their minds This is something that only God could do. This is not something that Moses ever did. This isn't something that Elijah ever did. This isn't just a man acting with God's authority. This is a man who is God. See how that's different? That's that's, that's something greater. So remember, I told you, it talks about the men who have been saved, who had been out of the boat. It says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. See how that sounds like Matthew's account? They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. So yeah, when we read Psalm 107, probably none of us will ever find ourselves wandering in the desert without food. It's unlikely. Probably none of us will find ourselves as prisoners with chains. That's one of the other metaphors that's used. Most, Some of us, maybe, will find ourselves out on a boat thinking we're going to die. I, that's more realistic, but it won't happen to all of us, surely, right? But in all those situations, we get the point, right? Wherever you are, whatever your great needs were and fears, God found you in that situation and he's able to rescue you. And you have confidence that he's able to do that because he gave you a preview. He gave you a trailer, so to speak. He let Jesus travel around for three to four years in that little section of Galilee and give us a sneak preview of what someday the the whole world will look like. So, you know, we maybe woke up this morning a little discouraged about things going on in our world, right? But our God still reigns. And it's just more of an encouragement to go back to the model prayer and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the same way that it already is being done in heaven, right? And we we have confidence that that will will take place. All right? Let's, Let's try to tackle one more of these. We have a few more minutes, all right? So let's look. These immediately happen. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke <clears throat> always put the, all three of them put the stilling of the storm right before the healing of the, the demon-possessed men at Gadara, probably because these are in chronological order. And as you read the story, you kind of get that feeling. They, they cross off, cross the lake, they come to this place, and that's the second thing. Uh, Matthew says he heals two men. If one of the other gospel writers tells us that it's only one man, one man, that's not a contradiction. Because if you killed, if I'm sorry, if you killed, if you healed two men, 
you also healed one man, right? The one is included in the two. We don't know why Mark and Luke decided to focus on one of the individuals. There might have been something remarkable about the one. But just because Matthew decides to tell us that there was two, we shouldn't just immediately jump to the conclusion that the Bible contradicts itself. All right, so they, they come to, to Gadara. We're not exactly sure where this is. I'll wander over to the, the map here. So this, they've been up here in, in Capernaum. So this is Jesus' home base where he's been doing most of his miracles. They cross over the sea. So this is, this is relatively zoomed in. So this city is five, or six miles from the lake, and the lake's six miles across at its widest point. So that gives you the dimensions. Things are relatively close. Gadara seems to be the city that Matthew names, but he doesn't say it happened in Gadara, right? It happened in the region of the Gerardians. So it's where these people live or what they control. So it probably goes all the way through this area and includes this little village here, here called Gergiza. And that's how both, uh, or that's how Luke refers to it in his gospel at least. And I think Mark might as well. And this area also does seem to geographically fit the description that Matthew gives of us. It has a kind of a steep bank that leads up to the, the lake where after these two men have the demons cast out of them, the demons go into the, to the pigs. All right? But just think about the elements in the story. If you flip the page, I try to lay these out here for you. First of all, we're in Gentile territory. So if you think back to those maps I've shown you before that had the different colors that showed who controlled which areas, this area of the Decapolis or the Ten Cities that was on the eastern side of Galilee, this is controlled directly by the Gentiles, and it's mostly Gentiles who live there. It becomes very clear that they're Gentiles because they have pigs. Jewish people don't raise pigs, right? All right? And pigs aren't just grazing. So I think maybe when I heard this story when I was little in Sunday school class, I just kind of pictured the pigs out there like you know, cattle just munching on the grass. But that doesn't really work. So there must have been something there that they liked. So some people have even suggested it could have been the city dump, right? I mean, there's something there that you brought all the pigs out to eat, right? Either way, it would have been a literal pig pen, right? All right? It wasn't just a green meadow with pigs just peacefully out there grazing. It would have been an icky scene. So you've got Gentiles, you've got pigs, you've got tombs, right? Because they're found in the tombs, and then you've got demons. So if you're a good Jewish reader of this story, by this point, your, your skin is crawling, right? <laughs> Matthew has just layered all of these features in here to paint a, a dark, bleak picture of these two poor men's predicament. And this doesn't stop Jesus at all. Jesus jumps off the boat. He strides right into this dark, icky scene, and he rescues those two men who are in spiritual bondage to demons. They have a legion, right? Thousands of demons behind them. He's just one individual, and it's still not a fair fight. He still tells them what to do. They show their true destructive nature by wiping out this whole flock of swine and running into the river. I think those two stories deliberately back-to-back, the healing or the stilling of the storm 
the cast down the demons together. I like to preach and teach those two passages together because I think they, they draw our attention to the fact that we can put our trust in our God, our, our Savior Jesus, because He is able to find us in these dark, difficult times that we find ourselves in. He's able to rescue us, right? None of these things that would have seemed like obstacles to the readers were obstacles to our Lord. All right? We'll stop there and we'll, we'll pick it up next time with chapter 9. Quick question. Yes. Back on the, on the Isaiah quote, yes. we had the, the reference right at the end. Uh, CSB, is that Holman Christian Standard Bible? Yeah, in their latest edition, they dropped the H. So instead of calling it the Holman Christian Standard Bible, now they just started calling it the Christian Standard Bible. Oh, okay. But it's just a revision of the same thing. Okay. Yep. But another good translation. Thank you. I'll look forward to seeing you next week.